When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in for another week of Women to Watch. It's great to be back with everyone, and I want to say thank you as well to all of you who have reached out with comments and questions and feedback on this show. We truly love hearing from our listeners. With me this evening is Kate Bonzen, and Kate is the Vice President of Oceans Global Initiatives at the Environmental Defense Fund. A really cool job Kate has, and she's going to be joining me in just a minute with her story. If you're new to the show, be sure to stay with us during the breaks to hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors who bring information and inspiration from the fields of health, legal matters, finance, military affairs, and technology. And to learn more about them and their organizations, uh, feel free to visit womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And uh, don't forget to sign up for our podcast so you never miss a show. And now I'm very honored and excited to welcome Kate Bonds into the show. Kate, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I understand you're you're calling us from California, sunny California. How is it there today? Yes, well, I'm in San Francisco, which notoriously has foggy summers. So I'm covered in fog right now, but I'm sure the rest of the state has quite a bit of sun. (laughs) Yeah, good. Um, Listen, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your upbringing in Clayton, California, which I understand is just east of San Francisco. And from what I've read, you did quite a bit of traveling as a kid, which I would imagine kind of spurred your interest in in the world, um, people and and the environment. Tell me, what did mom and dad do? Yes, so my uh, father was in corporate finance and my mother um, started a career as a physical education teacher. And then when my brother and I came along, she decided to commit herself to uh, full-time 
stay-at-home mom work um, and also did a lot of work with volunteer organizations. And you know what I I should mention at the top of the show, this is important to your story. You happen to be a mom of three small boys under the age of three. Am I right? That is correct. Yes, I have a almost three-year-old. He'll be three in September. And then I have nine and a half month old twin boys as well. So it's a busy, a busy one around here. So (laughs) what, you know, you have a very, I think, big, important, exciting job. What's it like managing a day with three small children? In addition, (laughs) it's um, exciting. We can say that. Um, And especially now that we're all in this moment of working from home, um, you know, I ping pong back and forth between work and, um, you know, nursing my twins and interacting with my oldest child. He sometimes likes to play at my feet and uh, while I'm doing work. Um, But, you know, thankfully we have everybody's uh, just rolling with it in these um, interesting times. And um, I feel really fortunate to, um, you know, to have a great set of colleagues um, and partners as well as a great partner at home who um, takes care of our children full time as well. My husband is a stay at home dad. Okay. Well, that that's very helpful. I I mean, have you actually been working from home for the past few months and and how have you managed that? Yes, I have. um, You know, right. I was just coming back from maternity leave right as um, we all went into shelter in place here in San Francisco and then quickly the rest of the state and then the country, much of the country followed. Um, So I never actually went back to the office. So I set up a a little home office in a in a corner um, and I, uh, you know, try to just commit myself to be able to do my work when um, when it's time to do that and then take lots of breaks to, um, you know, visit my kids and and uh, and interact with them and make sure that they have what they need as well. But it definitely helps with my husband being a full time uh, caretaker. He's he's able to really keep tabs on them throughout the day. That's great. But, you know, at that age, it's very hard to explain to them why mom can't perhaps play right now. <laughs> oh, they right? don't understand. Oh. Yeah. My, yeah. My oldest uh, often sits on my lap while I, uh, you know, am on video conference with various colleagues or is, you know, banging on my door. Um, but uh, <laughs> we, uh, we make the most of it. And he, um, it's, it's good for him to understand that, you know, mom works and engages with, with other people as well as being a mom. Right. Yeah. So I want to talk about, you know, your own childhood a little bit. I read that um, when you were growing up, you certainly were an adventurous child, I'll say, and spent a lot of time outdoors. Uh, Your childhood idol was Jane Goodall. She's incredible. Um, And you dreamed of becoming an animal behavioral scientist living in the jungles of Africa with chimpanzees. That says a lot about you, I think, as a little girl. Tell me, when did you let go of that dream and and turn towards your dream of um, the ocean and and working with fish? Yes. So, I mean, as you said, I loved Jane Goodall. I thought she was so interesting and lived such a fascinating life. And I just thought that that would be um, really empowering and invigorating to live that kind of life where you were really in touch with nature and in touch with animals. Um, And in addition to loving Jane Goodall and primates, I also had a a longstanding love of the water. As you said, we traveled a lot and 
whether that was day trips to the California coast or family trips to the state of Washington or even to Hawaii, um, a lot of my time was spent engaging with the ocean and with the water. I loved up in the Puget Sound of Washington. I loved um, exploring tide flats and catching crabs and building sandcastles and learning about riptides and all sorts of stuff. And in Hawaii, I really um, enjoyed snorkeling and seeing the colorful fish and playing in the waves. And I just felt so connected to water. And, you know, slowly over time, I realized that there there were career paths in that regard and that that was really where my deep passion lied. And so in, in college, I was able to really um, begin to see how that could build into something that was more of a lifelong passion that could also be um, a career and I was really lucky enough to um, to be able to to um, you know chart a education and and job pathway that has led me in this direction. You know, it's so interesting to me because I think it's not that common that you know our interests and love as as children is directly connected to what we end up doing as adults. And you send us a, a wonderful picture of yourself playing in the ocean. Um, as a kid. And, you know, it's fascinating to me to see what you're doing today. Um, You actually received your master's in earth systems and marine conservation from Stanford. That's a really rigorous academic uh, schedule and focus. How hard was school for you? Oh, that's a great question. So I was, you know, one of those students who um, I always worked hard, but I, you know, did pretty well all the way through um, high school. And then I got to college and, you know, it was like another level. And I had to really learn how to um, to study in a different way. Um, and you know, I, I got my undergraduate degree from Stanford as well. Um, but I just found such inspiring professors and programs of work there that I was always really interested in studies. And um, I had the opportunity to do a lot of um you know, other things like I I studied abroad in Berlin, which was really important. And actually, at the time, Berlin, or I'm sorry, Germany, um, the Green Party was in power. And so that was an eye-opening experience that there could be, you know, a party that was dedicated to the environment that was actually in power. And I also spent a summer doing a course on Vancouver Island, where I was backpacking and kayaking around the island and interacting with um, loggers and fishers and First Nation people and really began to deeply understand the um, connection between people and the environment. And all of those experiences, you know, really made my studies so rich and interesting that, um, you know, it was it while it was hard work, it was enjoyable and, and easy to dedicate myself to it. You know what, Kate, I want to talk more about that when we come back. We're going to go into our first break. Stay tuned for our military watch and our health watch. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. Military watch. As the United States celebrates its 244th birthday this Independence Day, I'm reminded of the fact that most U.S. military branches were established before the founding of our country. Service members are a special group of Americans who represent a long line of patriots who've sworn an oath to defend it all, our Constitution, our ideals, and all that our country aspires to be. This legacy of service, older than the nation itself, continues today as nearly 50,000 National Guard and Reserve members are mobilized across all 50 states and three territories to keep communities safe during the COVID-19 pandemic and community unrest. 
Among those men and women are Comcast NBC Universal employees. Just imagine after returning from work and having dinner with your family, you get a call to report by 8 a.m. the next day with all your gear ready to deploy to another city. That was me. I served in the National Guard for several years, and I can speak firsthand to the challenges and stress of holding a full-time job and serving the nation at the same time. The one thing that eases those challenges is a supportive employer that understands your mission and assures you your job and team will be there when you return. Comcast NBC Universal is a military-ready company and works hard to create an inclusive and supportive environment for all our military community employees, especially those serving in the National Guard and Reserve. From unique benefits to human resource supports, we do all that we can to empower our teammates navigating both their military and civilian careers. I had the chance to talk to one of our teammates on the front lines of the pandemic, and she said, it's tough to go from sales rep one day to soldier the next, but it is an awesome feeling to be able to help my community. This is who our nation service members are, people wanting and willing to put the greater good ahead of themselves. We're incredibly proud of our men and women in uniform, and as our country faces difficult times, I'm comforted knowing there are so many willing to put it all on the line for us to move forward as a country together. I wish you all a safe and happy 4th of July. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Now, the women to watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Growing up, my favorite cartoon was Popeye the Sailor. He could snore so loudly, it kept the mouse in his house awake. And with every deep, sleepy breath, the curtains would sway, even the drawers in his dresser would slide in and out. Sound familiar? Do you snore? If so, it may be a sign of a common sleep disorder known as sleep apnea. Apnea means you stop breathing. Think about that. When you stop breathing less oxygen to your heart and brain, it may wake you up. Low oxygen levels and poor sleep can increase risk for high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and other serious conditions. Not everyone who snores has sleep apnea, but if you notice daytime sleepiness, low energy, poor focus, morning headaches, you may often fall asleep in passive situations like religious services, lectures, even worse when you're driving. Even gasping and choking during sleep that can awaken you, ask your bed partner if you stop breathing when you snore. If so, ask your doctor about testing. This morning on Your Radio Doctor, I spoke to Jefferson Health Physicians Dr. Carl DeGramji from the Sleep Disorder Center and ear, nose, and throat specialist Dr. Moritz Boone. They offer testing and several treatment options. Listen to the podcast on yourradiodoctor.com. Obesity is a common finding, especially with extra weight at your neck or waist, but not every patient is overweight. Some have a narrow airway from enlarged tongue, tonsils, or uvula, or even a small lower jaw. One other thought, sometimes severe acid reflux can imitate sleep apnea if acid comes up into your throat and causes choking when you're lying down in sleep. Helpful hints to you see your doctor? Try not to sleep on your back. 
lose weight, avoid alcohol. It can make it worse or disrupt sleep in general. Ask your doctor if any medicines you're taking can contribute. So Divas, Popeye says, I'm strong to the finish because I eat my spinach. I say, get good healthy sleep. It could add years to your life. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm talking to Kate Bonzen this evening. She's Vice President of Oceans Global Initiatives at the Environmental Defense Fund. And uh, Kate, just before the break, you had talked about um, kind of your discovery of this connection between people and the environment. And I, I think it's really fascinating. And I wanted to know if you could share something that you've discovered through this work um, that perhaps us lay people might not know. Sure. Um, well, first of all, I think what, one thing that is so important for us to know is that fish are really important source of protein and essential nutrients for people. Three billion people around the world rely on fish as a major source of protein. And one in every five people on the planet needs fish for the essential for essential nutrients that they can't get anywhere else, like omega threes and et cetera. And so that's um, you know, first of all, just so important for us to know how vital fish is as part of our global food um, supply. And also, I think the other really key thing for us to know is that fishers and people who are, you know, trying to fish for a living, they want to be able to have that fish be sustainable for the long term. And they, many of them have been in broken systems of management that don't allow them to have a long-term lens around conservation. But when you actually flip those incentives and you give them the security that they need for the fish that they're going to access into the future, then they become the best stewards possible of the resource. And that's really the heart of what we are trying to do um, and what we have seen works around the world to ensure sustainability. Mm. Um, you know what? I have a, a question from one of our listeners. Her name is Ophelia. And she wrote and asked, she said she's an environmentalist um, and, and recently graduated with her bachelor's. And she asks, what helped you move forward in your career path after school to get you where you are now? Oh, that's a great question. So the key for me was actually right out of my master's program, I um, got an internship and that internship was actually at Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm still there 18 years later. Um, wow. So, I, you know, I was able to really find an internship with on a topic that I was so passionate about with an organization that was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And I had amazing mentors who really um, helped guide me, you know, through this and gave me opportunities to work on really important projects. And, um, you know, I've been able to um, stay and I've moved from an intern all the way up to vice president, which is, um, you know, I think pretty unusual for this day and age, but has been um, really, really important and rewarding for me. Wow. And, and I would say impressive for your age, too. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're you're young and um, it seems as though you've moved pretty quickly. Yeah, and, well, and in, part of right, that, in a field, I would yeah. say that's that's predominantly um, dominated by by men. 
Yeah, it's interestingly, um, there are aspects of, of our field that are dominated by men. Um, you know, most of the fishers that I've worked with have been men, although there are many women fishers around the world. Um, but my organization actually happens to have quite a few women um, in it. I think we are we are we have more women than men on balance, and we have many women in leadership positions. So I felt very fortunate to have. Um, a good role models that um, I can follow and who have been my um, champions. Um, but one of the benefits I've also had is, you know, the the work of the Oceans Program at Environmental Defense Fund was really growing at the time that I came into the organization. So I've been able to grow right along with that. And, you know, we started as a program of about 20 people when I joined and we're now, you know, close to 100 staff all over the world. Wow. You know, that was one of my questions was was kind of around when was it that this type of project or the work that you do um, really became a thing or began? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, in some sense, there have been communities around the world that have approached managing their fisheries. Um, and, you know, I should say that fish are, it's wild fish that are swimming free in the ocean that, you know, anybody can go access. And so, um, you know, it's up to us as, as um, you know, groups of people, communities, governments, et cetera, to figure out how to successfully manage those fish and the people who are accessing them. And there are many, many um, communities throughout the world who, for long periods of time have, um, you know, had methods of managing fish that have been really sustainable. But, you know, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, we saw that there was, you know, big increases in technology and, um, you know, the the population of people. So we were fishing these populations of fish, especially in the ocean, harder and harder and harder. And they were, you know, dwindling and dwindling. Um, and starting in the 70s or so, there were a few countries that started to try this different approach where they would actually give fishermen a secure share of the fish rather than making fishermen compete with each other to catch as much as they could as fast as they could. And those um, systems um, really showed over time that they were uh, much, much better, you know, that they were performing better. It's also important to say that there were science-based limits on how much those fishermen could catch, and there were methods of accountability to make sure that they were really staying within those limits. Um, And so in the, you know, 1990s and 2000s, more um, countries around the world started seeing the success of these, um, you know, early programs and started um, trying to emulate them. Um, And the United States is one of those countries where we've actually been able in the past 15 years or so to really turn many of our um, federal fisheries around so that they are now very sustainable. Terrific. I'm speaking to Kate Bonson, if you're just tuning in, Vice President of Oceans Global Initiatives at um, Environmental Defense Fund. We're going to go into our second break and hear from our legal watch and finance watch. Now, Now the women to watch. This is Nicole Hittner from Ballard's Bar Law Firm for Legal Watch. I'm very pleased to share some good news today. For the 10th consecutive year, Ballard has earned the gold standard certification from the Women in Law Empowerment Forum. Our firm is one of only four law firms nationwide to receive this recognition every year since the program's inception in 2011. 
This the is Women Nicole in Law from Forum, Ballard, Bar Law for Left, for Legal Watch. is the leading the organization dedicated to helping women every the aspect of largest business, law firms, including the way corporate law departments advance their careers Join us on June empowerment for and webinar. leadership. The gold standard certification we receive is based on objective criteria for female participation, firm and practice management, and governance, as well as the promotion and compensation of women attorneys. It emphasizes leadership positions achieved by women equity partners if you're watching the news at all, you'll know that it's their an issue that many to promoting and barely compensating women to Amazon and integrating outstanding female attorneys in the wake of the virus echelon of leadership. And I am proud to coach created. Ballard women and the to legal be an equity partner at a firm that recognizes the incredible value and find a registration link to offer. Log on As always, there's more to be done, but it's important to periodically pause and take stock of how far we've come. This is Nicole Hittner with your Legal Watch from Ballard's Bar, a Wyla Gold Standard certified firm. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Watch. Hi, this is Terry, and I'm from Fortis Wealth. Recent events have many people thinking about getting life insurance, and now. About 60% of Americans live in dual-income households, and nearly 4 in 10 women are the primary earners for their families. If your income helps support your children, other family members, and or your partner, you need life insurance. Even single women with no dependents may want to provide a source of cash for final expenses and legacy goals. Women tend to underestimate how much life insurance they should have. Even if you don't work outside the home or bring in a regular paycheck, your contributions to the family have monetary value. If you weren't here, who would care for your children or other family members who depend on you? Shop for food, prepare meals, clean the house, do the laundry. Having someone else take over these activities could be expensive. When determining the right amount of coverage you should have, it's important to look at all the contributions you make to your household and family in addition to any earnings. And buying life insurance is getting easier. Costs are generally lower due to longer life expectancies and to the data available about certain conditions that are no longer life-threatening. And there's more good news. Some insurance companies had already begun pre-coronavirus taking steps to phase out the in-person medical exam in favor of technology-based risk assessments. Whether or not this will suffice in your case depends on your health, medical risk factors, and the amount of coverage you're seeking. Having life insurance through your employer is not enough. Coverage is contingent upon your active employment, and it's not based on the contributions you make to your family. Start by figuring out the annual value of your contributions to your household, those that can be measured in dollars and others that can't. Then educate yourself on the basics of life insurance through resources like financial planning magazines and books and websites like lifehappens.com. We highly encourage you to consult with a trusted financial professional to help educate you on the various life insurance products and evaluate your options to determine the right mix of coverage. You insure your car, your home, and other property. Isn't it at least as important to insure your financial worth to your family? This is Terry. Peace out. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. I'm talking to Kate Bonzen this evening, the Vice President of Oceans Global Initiatives at Environmental Defense Fund, and really fascinating work that you get to do. Um, Kate, I understand, you know, you work with scientists, the fishing community, 
and um, government officials to find, you know, solutions. And I would imagine these are three groups that have completely different agendas and priorities. I wanted to ask you what your uh, tactic is for, I'll, I'll say, negotiating with with people from from all these different areas. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. I mean, yes, well. All of those groups have different perspectives. At the end of the day, they all want the same thing. You know, they all want thriving fisheries that are producing food and livelihoods um, for people and that are really contributing to a healthy ocean ecosystem. And so each of them may care about a different part of the equation a little bit more than the other. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, they all want the same thing. So I think the core is to really get people to focus on that and to see what they have in common and that they all want healthy fisheries and healthy oceans and healthy communities, and then to craft pathways that meet everybody's needs in getting there. Um, and of course, you know, each each of those groups has a, has a different role to play um, and that and we need to respect that role. Um, but when you really get people to to focus on a common goal, then, um, you know, you can begin to really um, get to workable solutions. So what would you say is your greatest obstacle? I think the greatest obstacle, well, I think there's two. So one in working with um, people is that, you know, we often all have very entrenched ways of doing things and entrenched um, perspectives. And it can sometimes be hard to break those down and think about a new way to do something, whether that's a new way to do um, science or think about, you know, how you really um, understand fisheries and what some of their scientific limits are or a new way to think about actually um, using different methods of fishing or different approaches to fishing or, you know, a different relationship between governments and communities that's one more based on co-management and mutual respect rather other than, you know, maybe draconian approaches to management. So, you know, breaking people out of kind of the way that they've done things for a really long time can be hard and scary, um, of course. Um, And then I think the other big challenge that we have actually is that climate change is impacting the ocean. And we are seeing that in big ways. It's changing the chemistry of the ocean. It's changing the temperature of the ocean. And it's actually causing fish to be on the move. So, Fish that normally um, were occurring, um, you know, in in tropical latitudes, for example, are beginning to move into more temperate latitudes. So they're beginning, you know, we're seeing a movement of fish stocks from the kind of equatorial region towards the polar regions of the globe. And as fish move, it's really hard um, to manage that. And so our organization is now really focused on thinking about managing for the future and building resilience for the future. And we are thinking about where fish are headed and not where they are today Um, and helping communities and governments adjust to that, uh, which is going to be a big adjustment. And, you know, I don't think that we actually know all the solutions um, at this point, but it's something that we're working on actively every day. So when, when I hear the the phrase, you know, climate change, um, Again, for those of us who don't work in this field at all, there's a lot of uh, there's an abundance of information and um, people have fear about it. And you're seeing firsthand um, some of the things that are changing. Can you tell me 
what what perhaps scares you the most and how you kind of manage your own fears around uh, the changes that are occurring that we might not have control over? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, in the in the world of kind of fish, um, you know, I, I do worry about the fact that um, the, you know, things that have always seemed um, sure are, are now not sure and they're changing. You know, for example, there was a, a few years ago, um, there was a mackerel war up in um, the, uh, in Northern Europe where fish that had normally been in Northern Europe was starting to move north into Iceland's waters. And it was unclear who, which fishermen really had the right or the ability to go after that fish. And, you know, they saw, uh, we saw both sets of fishermen, you know, fishermen in Iceland as well as fishermen from Northern Europe uh, catching that. And they were, you know, driving that fish stock, you know, um, lower and lower and lower. And if we, don't manage those kinds of uh, potential conflicts, then we could get ourselves in a situation where we, you know, really get back to, you know, deep overfishing of our stocks and we won't have um, fish in order to be able to support, you know, the population, the food population, the food needs of our population. And so I think that that is really um, frightening and um, scary. I think for me, the, the, what I go to is I try to go to action. You know, I first try to understand deeply what the issues are and, you know, the science behind them and the facts behind them, and then um, craft solutions working with um, people, including the constituents that are directly involved, to come up with solutions that are going to really, really going to work for people under this new changing um, situation. And once you go to action, um, you know, I think that that really starts to make you um, feel like you're at least moving in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's really great advice, Kate, you know, um, for for any kind of fears, you know, to to be actionable is a great way to kind of alleviate that. Uh, We're going to go into our last break. Stay with us for our Tech Watch. I'm talking to Kate Bonzen, Vice President of Oceans Global Initiatives at Environmental Defense Fund. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso of Pathways Consulting Group. With so much future opportunity in the technology industry, getting girls interested at an early age without forcing it on them is key. To foster a love for something, you need to make it a part of everyday life. To do this, you need to spark a young girl's interest in STEM activities. It's critical to let them play with objects and ideas to help them see that there's more than one way to get to a solution. And by playing games and puzzles, it increases their ability to recognize and understand patterns and association of things. Using their imagination leads to original thinking and ability to generate multiple solutions to problems. With summer here, maybe this year you're planning a staycation, or maybe you're planning a trip to the beach. Regardless of what you're doing or where you do it, there's lots of activities you can introduce to all ages of girls. Everything from building explosive sandcastles to building robots. Here are a few great websites and products to investigate. Yellowscope has STEM kits for different age groups and can be found on Amazon. They have kits as low as $25. LearningResources.com makes awesome early learning STEM toys. I especially like their STEM toy, Botley, the coding robot geared to ages 5 and up. 
little bits are electronic modules that snap together with magnets and are color-coded, turning ideas into little inventions. Their kits can also be found on Amazon. And recently, I found a website, steampoweredfamily.com. They have so many inexpensive ways to capture the attention of girls and boys of all ages. I especially like their project called Circuit Bugs. By using pipe cleaners and circuits, you can make little bugs that light up. It's up to us to encourage and nurture the future women technologists, and starting at an early age is key. If you have other ideas you'd like to share or would like more information, email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Kate, I was wondering um, if there are, if you are seeing more and more women entering uh, this field that you're working in. We're always talking about the field of STEM in general. Um, but this is very specific. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I do think that there are a lot of um, women who are in our field. As I mentioned earlier, you know, our organization actually has quite a few women. And we see women in all sorts of um, aspects of this field. You know, some of the women I work with are scientists. Some are lawyers. Um, some are women, you know, in communities. Some are women in elected positions. Um, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of interest. And you know, I think that there's an inherent um, connection between, you know, women and the environment in that um, women kind of often have that desire to really um, take care of things, whether it's their family or their community or their environment. And so I think there's a really natural connection there and um, one, one that I see growing all the time. Can you tell me, did you ever face any discrimination yourself working in this field? Uh, Well, I have certainly um, had some experiences where I was the only woman in the room. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. fisher, fishermen, especially in the United States, um, the the fishing industry is largely dominated by men in the United States, um, as are many of the government positions. So there were often times when I was, the only woman in the room and often the youngest in the room. Um, and so that, you know, could be intimidating at times. And there um, were, you know, sometimes where I felt like it was hard to speak up, but I always found that when I did, you know, especially if I had, um, you know, good facts behind me and I had, you know, made personal connections with people that there was always a welcoming of me. Um, and so I have not, felt um, some of the same kind of discrimination that I think people maybe in other fields um, have felt. Um, You know, I think I've been really fortunate in that regard. I'd love to know how you specifically in those moments when you did, what is your kind of uh, philosophy for 
managing situations like that. You know, women are always looking for better ways to handle um, an experience where, you know, their expertise is perhaps not being um, considered the way it should. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's um, a good question. I think first I always felt like I needed to do my homework and that I needed to be prepared. Um, and, you know, I think some of that is uh, just true to myself, you know, that I always do do better when I feel like I have kind of the facts behind me um, and that I really understand deeply what I'm talking about. And then I think the other part of it is actually to kind of have a stance of being open to others and really trying to understand where they're coming from and um, have them not feel um, like, like intimidated in any way, you know, that I'm just trying to understand them and where, what their perspectives are. And, um, you know, trying to kind of contain my, my own self and feel like I have strength in myself um, and treat others in a similar manner. Um, I think, you know, you can get, get a lot, uh, you can go far with that type of approach in life. Yeah. Do you do any work outside of your role um, with young girls in, in the STEM field? That's a great question. I um, have welcomed many interns over the years, um, many of whom are women, and some of whom actually still work for Environmental Defense Fund, um, which is always really um, so exciting to see, you know, when you um, really find somebody with a similar passion and you can help, um, you know, help help them grow into their um, potential. Um, and I've done, you know, a number of engagements with um with schools, whether that's my university or, um, you know, high schools or elementary schools, et cetera, where people are often reaching out because it is um, such a kind of a unique um, topic and a unique job. So they're often trying to understand more about um, what we do. Um, But I haven't done anything lately in a very organized way. I I hope that as my um, boys get older, that I will have the opportunity to um, engage more with them and their classmates through um, their schooling opportunities as well. I would imagine if it was bring your parent to school day, the boys would think what you do is very cool. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And of course, again, they're a little young to to verbalize that right now. Yeah. Yes. But uh, some days sooner, sooner than I, uh, sooner than I want, they will, uh, they will be going off to school. Yeah. Right. Um, Listen, I understand that um, EDF has, you know, um, numerous coalitions um, working on environmental issues. I had two questions around that. Um, I guess which uh, groups of people do you find um, are the most interested in working with you? And and what has surprised you the most? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's I wanted. I actually wanted to connect this back to what we were just talking about in terms of women in the field. Um, so, you know, while um, some of my experiences in the United States have been the field of fishing is very dominated by men, that is not the case in much of the rest of the world, um, especially in the developing world in the trop- tropics. Many fishermen and, or I should say, fishers are women. 
And um, women have a very big role to play in fisheries all over the world. Um, in addition to being fishers themselves, they often are the ones who are kind of running the business um, on the shore side. And they are, um, you know, they're help. They're active in processing and all sorts of things. So, you know, we have crafted um, many relationships and coalitions with um, small-scale fishers around the world, um, including with many um, female-led organizations. And I think that that is um, so important. You know, 90% of the world's fishers are small-scale, and uh, many of them are in places that are, you know, experiencing climate change. They're very vulnerable populations. They are... um, you know, at the, at the poverty line. And so it's really important for us to be working uh, closely with those communities in order to give them tools that can help them thrive into the future. Wow, that that's really fascinating. That was actually, you know, my last question was around the work that you do in different countries. And I was curious if, you know, what the difference was in philosophy to ocean conservation. So it's surprising to me to hear that so many women in outside of the U.S. Um, are fishermen. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. And there's, um, you know, different cultures certainly have different approaches um, to how they interact with fish and how they um, engage with it, both from a, you know, a culinary perspective as well as a livelihood perspective. Mm-hmm. And in right. and many places, you know, throughout Asia and Africa in particular, um, and Latin America as well, um, you know, Fish is a a real central part of people's lives, and it's, um, you know, a core part of their livelihoods. It's a core part of what they eat, and it's really important for us to be working hand-in-hand with them to make sure that they can do that long into the future. Kate, it was a great conversation. Um, I learned a lot, and I thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you to our watch team and sponsors for their support. And thanks for tuning in every week to hear women share their amazing stories. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.